This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. morning, everyone. It is time to get started. So uh, we have more space on this side now. So if you have trouble seeing the screen on my left, your right, you're welcome to come over. Uh, this is our second seminar session. And specifically, we're going to be dealing with risk and insurance. I know, right? Insurance. Oh, so interesting. But uh, I think it is going to be a helpful topic for those of us who um, have to deal with such realities. All right. I think, uh, question. Is there going to be time for Q&A? It depends. Um, (laughs) It depends how quickly I can get through it and also uh, what kind of questions you have. No. Um, right now, uh, this particular seminar, I, I have a feeling because we're going to be a little bit late, and then we have another meeting right afterwards. I don't want to run into the main meeting. May not, may not have a general. Uh, this afternoon, we might have a little bit more. You know, if it's the last meeting, and tomorrow morning, I'm hoping it'll be a little shorter. I'm trying to pack in as much information as I can, since uh, we're talking about money, and I want to give you your money's worth. Uh, so if you have questions, you can come to me privately, and I'll, I'll talk with you. It's, it's uh, probably better that way. All right, let's pray, and we'll get started. Father in heaven, thank you so much for bringing us safely together again as we begin the second session. Speak to us again. Give us wisdom on how to manage some very practical aspects of our financial lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so for those of you who weren't here, I'm going to give a little bit of uh, introduction uh, not an introduction, but a little sales pitch, I guess. Session number two, give a portion of seven, understanding risk and insurance. You must be thinking, give a portion of seven? What, what does that mean? Where does that come from? Well, pay attention. You'll find out. Savingthecrumbs.com. This is our website where my wife and I write about personal, <coughs> personal finance. you can find a lot of information on there. I'm going to give you this little uh, teaser. This particular hour that we're dealing with insurance is completely new. It's 100% new material. It's not on the website, and it's not anything I've presented anywhere before. So this is, you guys are the first ones to ever hear this presentation. It is not found in this seminar session from GYC two years ago. And if you want to go back and listen to all six hours, there's other stuff there. So risk. We need to talk about risk. What is risk when we say that word? Here are just a few things that we think refer to when we think about risk. Fire. I was just in Santa Rosa, California. That's where my in-laws live. And we drove through the neighborhoods that got scorched. It is surreal. It is unbelievable, the devastation there. And Redwood Avenue Academy, our school, I was there, saw it firsthand. Accidents, of course, happen. Medical (coughs) emergencies. Illness, we all have heard of people who got hit by a car, car accident, got sick, cancer, heart attack, whatever, or people who die and flooding. We had hurricane after hurricane, right, all through the year. These are what we associate with risk. But what about how does this tie into our personal finances? Well, the simple answer is all of these things cost money. A simple way to think about risk is events that happen that causes us to lose money. You get in a car accident, you have to replace your car. You get sick, you have hospital bills. Your house burns down, you have to buy a new one or replace it. Risk is correlated with the loss of money. That's what it is. But let me make an analogy. All of these things we group together, we call risk, but I like to think of them as a ticking time bomb. So when we think about risk, I, like to, I want you to have this mental picture in your mind. Each of us have a time bomb that is strapped to us all the time. And this time bomb is ticking. We don't know when it will go off. 
And when it does go off, we don't know how big the explosion is going to be. It might be a small explosion, or it might be a nuclear explosion. We just don't know. But the reality is, because we live in a sinful world, we all have this ticking time bomb known as risk in our lives. We can't avoid it. It's a fact. All we can do is manage it, and thus the term risk management, right? So risk is a time bomb. We don't know when it will go off. We don't know how big the explosion is. But when, <coughs> but when it does go off, what's the ramifications? It will cost money to fix the problem. Okay, so that's how it ties into personal finances. It might cost a lot, a lot, a lot of money, or it might not cost that much. So is that visual picture in your head? You understand what I mean when I say risk now? We have things that are financially risky or potentially catastrophic in our lives at any moment. We might get sick. We might get hit by a car. Hurricane might uh, come through town or fire, earthquake, whatnot. So what can we do about this risk? We have it. We can't get rid of it. We can't defuse it. So what do we do? Okay, well, generally, we rely on someone else. Who do we rely on? Here are the options. Okay, so when we have some sort of emergency, whatever the need might be, usually the first line of defense are friends and family. We go to them saying, can you help me? I'm sick. My house burned down. Can I, go, can I come live with you? you know, can you provide some assistance? But we all understand that there are emergencies, risks that happen in our lives that are bigger than what our family and friends can absorb. And so what happens after that? There's the state. There are government programs. Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, food stamps, WIC program, you know, government, uh, children's health care, all, all those types of programs, and FEMA. So if there's an explosion in our lives that is bigger than what our family and friends can take care of, Sometimes, not always, sometimes the state provides safety nets in society that can help provide for some of those needs. Except uh, there are limitations, you realize. Not everyone qualifies. If you earn too much or uh, you, you have certain circumstances that disqualify, you, you may not get those things. And also, I just read in the news last week, the chief of FEMA and you realize FEMA, I don't even know what the acronym exactly stands for, but they go in after the disasters and clean up and all that. Basically, they say, he said, that if the natural disasters continue at the current clip that we've been having, don't count on FEMA anymore. You're on your own. So what, what does that say? The state, we can't necessarily count on them. If there is a program that we qualify for uh, temporarily to help get us on our feet, yeah, take advantage of it. I'm not saying don't take advantage of it, but we can't rely on the state for all of our needs. Of course, you hear the debate about Social Security. We're at GYC, so some of us younger people, who knows you know, how much will be there when we get to retirement age. We just don't know. So while, yes, the state does have some uh, ways to help protect us in case of the massive explosion of this ticking time bomb, we can't necessarily count on them to cover 100%. So that leads us to our last option, which is the church. So we looked at the church, and when I say the church, it may not necessarily mean the Adventist church denomination as a whole. Generally, it's more just um, local church and church members. And the church can pitch in and help and, and provide <coughs> excuse me, for the needs of our, uh, the ticking time bomb that went off. But there might be a question. Some of us might be asking, what about God? Shouldn't we just trust God? Give him the time bomb? He'll just take care of it? Like he'll just shield us from the consequences of emergencies that happen? Is that how the world works? Well, we do want to trust in God, but let's see what, how does God deal with the problem. So isn't this God's problem when we think about risk and emergencies and catastrophes that happen? Testimonies for the Church, Volume 4, page 511, paragraph 1. God does not propose to rain means from heaven with which to sustain the poor, but he has placed his goods in the hands of agents. So notice carefully, God's plan of action is not to work a miracle from heaven to fix our problems. 
Even though sometimes that's what we associate. We just assume that God is just going to miraculously fix the problem. And sometimes he does intervene. Like I just shared the story about how he had divine appointment and he worked things out. I'm not saying that God does not work. But notice how he typically chooses to work. He places his goods in the hands of his agents. They are to recognize Christ in the person of his saints and what they do for his suffering children, they do for him, for he identifies his interest with that of suffering humanity. So to put it simply, when we think about God will provide, right? I'm not going to buy insurance. I'm not going to take care of, you know, I'm not going to have health insurance or whatever it might be. I'm going to trust in God. What are we actually saying? We're saying, I expect the church to take care of me. That's really what we're saying. So let's take a look at the next slide here. So the church is God's agent. When we read that statement, God does not propose to rain means from heaven. That's not his first primary mode of operation. He's raining manna. It's not his first option. His first option is he looks to his people and says, you help them. You help the people in need. So the church is God's agent for helping the poor and needy in the church and in the world. Amen. That's what the church is here for. Matthew 25, you know, and all that. However, the church is not God's agent for helping those who can help themselves in the church or in the world. You understand the difference? There's a very big difference between these two statements. If we have the opportunity, the ability to provide for ourselves, but we expect the church to take care of us, guess what? That's not the church's responsibility. Let's make this clear. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 2, 75, page 75, paragraph 1. The prominent position which you as a family occupy in the church makes it highly necessary for you to be burden bearers. Not that you are to take burdens for those who are able to bear their own and also to aid others, but you should help those who stand most in need of help. So you notice Ellen White makes it very clear. Yes, you need to help the poor, but don't help those who can help themselves. Divert your attention to those who really need the help. Let's make this even clearer. Next statement. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 1, page 272, paragraph 2. And God does not require our brethren to take charge of every poor family that shall embrace the message. If they do this, the ministers must cease to enter new fields, for the funds will be exhausted. So there's a correlation. The money that goes to help the poor is coming from somewhere else. Many of the poor, from their own lack of diligence and economy, Many, oh, excuse me, many are poor from their own lack of diligence in economy. They know not how to use means of right. If they should be helped, it would hurt them. Some will always be poor. Does Ellen White recommend us helping the poor? Yes. Does she recommend us helping anyone who is poor? No. Now, this might be tough for us to handle. We might look at this statement and say, man, that's harsh. But you got to understand why she said it. It's right here. Because if we do that, the work of God to taking the gospel to the world and whatever else might be, won't be finished. Because the poor will always have with us. And some, it says, will always be poor. So what am I trying to say? We're not necessarily here talking about, you know, the pro- appropriate ways of handling charity and, and philanthropy and all those kinds of things. I'm talking about us in this situation. If we have the capability through our own diligence and economy to take care of our needs, we are not the church's responsibility to take care of. That's my point. So is there a better way? We've got to remember. So let's say our family and friends, you know, we, we, we don't want to hit them up for money all the time. We don't want to take advantage of them. The state, we don't qualify for whatever programs or they run out of money. And the church... You know, we want the money to stay in the church. We realize every dollar we take from the church represents a dollar that could have gone to another part of God's work. As faithful stewards, we realize that that money should be going to win the loss, not necessarily to take care of me. And we understand that to take care of us, oops, excuse me, let me go back. Uh, to take care of us when we can take care of ourselves is not a responsibility of the church. So we have to keep this thought in mind. So is there a better way? So if, if we look at these four options and we don't qualify for them and we shouldn't take advantage of our friends and family and, and we should take care of ourselves and not rely on the church, so what do we do? What, what are the options? So this is the option that most Americans today take. 
And you know what? If you have an emergency that just blew up your personal finances, and you're like, your financial house is just like engulfed in flames, and you go running to a credit card, you know what you're doing? You're pouring gasoline on that fire. You're making it worse. Because if you can't pay the bills, how do you expect to pay the bills with interest? I mean, it makes no sense. So for us, easy credit seems like a way out, but it's actually digging a deeper hole. It just keeps us in slavery. So scratch that. Credit card, no good. Here's a better option. Self-reliance and independence of a certain kind. I have to make that qualification. When we hear this statement, oh, well, you need to be self-reliant and, self and independent, you might be thinking, like, that goes contrary to everything we, we're taught as Adventists, right? When we read about Laodicea, what's the problem with Laodicea? Thou seest thou art rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, right? That's the problem with Laodicea, self-sufficiency, self-dependence. But that's not what I'm talking about. Okay? Yes, Laodicea is true, but there is a certain type of self-reliance and independence that is admirable, that should be striven for. And this is what it is. Avenus homepage 374, paragraph 1. Independence of one kind is praiseworthy. To desire to bear your own weight, not to eat the bread of dependence. I want you to remember this word, dependence. This word comes up over and over again. And this is a key point. To not eat the bread of dependence is right. It is a noble, generous ambition that dictates the wish to be self-supporting. So what kind of self-reliance and independence are we talking about? The ability to take care of ourselves, to not be dependent on someone else. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about being independent from God. We're not saying being self-sufficient in our own righteousness. It's not about that. We're talking about taking care of our material needs. Next statement. Avenue on page 395, paragraph 1. Brother and sister B have not learned the lesson of economy. They would use all as they pass along, were it ever so much. They would enjoy as they go, and then, when affliction draws upon them, would be wholly unprepared. That's another way of saying when their time bomb of risk goes off, they would be unprepared. Why? Because as they were living their life, they were just enjoying life, and they're just spending everything as they go, making no preparation to be self-reliant. Continuing this same statement, but they will not economize as others have done upon whom they have sometimes been dependent. There's that word again. These people, because they were not willing to keep their spending in check now, when they run into hard times, they go to the church. I need help. If they neglect to learn these lessons, this is the clincher. Their characters will not be found perfect in the day of God. This is a spiritual issue, people. This issue that Ellen White is discussing here, the desire to not suffer the consequences of our own choices, it will testify against us in the judgment. Let me make this clear. I put this in writing so I don't misstate it. It's a character issue. If we have the ability whether through economy or diligence, to provide for our needs, but expect others to bail us out. It is a character defect that testifies against us in the judgment. Okay, this is an important point, and I'm going to make this even more blunt. To put it bluntly, when we have the ability to provide for ourselves, but want others to shield us from the consequences of our own choices, we are defrauding our neighbor. Because think about it. If I could have made a preparation to take care of my needs when the emergency comes, and I have to take your money, that money that would have gone to win a soul in some other place, guess what I have done? I have stolen the gospel from someone, defrauding our neighbor. Maybe I'm putting it too harshly, but let me just put it this way. If all of us, like we just had a Pathways to Health, it's a wonderful thing, helping all these people, but if we have to spend all that time ministering to our own needs within the church, what a... What, what's left to take care of the people who are sick and dying out in the world? You understand what I'm saying? Like, we need to be in a position to help other people not requiring care. But I'm getting myself ahead of myself here. So this statement is very pointed. And this statement is going to come back multiple times. Selected Messages, Volume 2, <coughs> volume two paragraph, uh, page 330, Paragraph 2. Diligence in business. 
abstinence from pleasure, even privation, so long as health is not endangered, should be cheerfully maintained by a young man in your circumstances, and you would have a little competency untouched should you become sick, that the charities of others would not be your dependence. There's that word again. Don't be dependent. Don't be dependent. Don't be dependent. And to what length should, be we, should we be willing to go to not be dependent? Number one, we should be diligent in business. We should be diligent in business no matter what. Abstinence from pleasure. Now this one's tough. Can you give up your Netflix subscription, your, the latest iPhone, the nicest car, in order so you can have a little bit of competency to shield yourself from needing to depend on other people? That's the question. Even privation. So Ellen White does go so far to say, better to sacrifice and suffer a little bit so you don't have to rely on other people to take care of you. As long as you don't endanger your health to do it. That's her qualification. So what's the principle here? Be self-reliant. Be independent. What's the point? So that we do not have to be dependent on the charity of other people. I'm drilling this point home because this is foundational to the whole hour that we're going to talk about here. And this is another angle here, Deuteronomy 15:66. For the Lord thy God blesseth thee as he has promised thee, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, but thou shalt not borrow. So what's the position that God desires his people to be in? To be the position of rendering aid, not requiring aid. You see that in the statement. We should be the one giving, lending out from our surplus, helping other people, not the one sitting there saying, well, I trusted in God, now I'm sick, so you have to pay for my health bill. You see the difference? We should be in the position of going to help the poor, not being the poor that needs help. Okay? So, what's the good kind of self-reliance? This principle that we're talking about. We need to be willing to bear our own weight, willing to rough it, be willing to sacrifice a little bit, go out there and, and work hard, be uh, economical and frugal, be industrious, be self-supporting, does not depend on the charity of others. That's a key point. And to be able to give aid rather than requiring aid. That's the position that God wants us to be in. If that is clear, can you say amen? amen. All right. So those are the principles. Now let's get specific and let's get practical. So how, right? How do I become self-reliant? Well, first, first step, we need to build an emergency fund. Emergency fund is the first line of self-defense. If I can put it this way, an emergency fund is a cushion that we place between us and the time bomb. We have this time bomb, right, of risk that's strapped to us. It's going to go off, but we just want that little bit of separation. So we have an emergency fund. It's like a, I don't know, hazmat suit, little bubble wrap. I don't know what it is, what mental picture you want. But you got a cushion now uh, for the types of things that inevitably will come up. Here's a statistic that's shocking to me. This was in Forbes magazine, 2016. 63% of Americans don't have enough savings to cover a $500 emergency. I hate to say this, but $500 in today's society should not qualify as an emergency. If $500 raises your, your blood pressure, like, you, you, like if you have an emergency, something happens and it costs you $500 and you're like all panicked about it, that's a symptom that you've got a bigger financial problem. Because $500 should not, you should not blink. It should not cause you to lose a wink of sleep. But 63% of Americans cannot weather a $500 emergency. That's a crisis. So we need an emergency fund to deal with those kinds of emergencies. A cushion, right, that can absorb at least $500 worth of damage. We got to have that. Avenue's home. 395, paragraph 3. You might today have had a capital of means to use in case of emergency and to aid the cause of God, if you had economized as you should. Every week, a portion of your wages should be reserved and in no case touched unless suffering actual want or to render back to the giver and offerings to God. Ellen White is a big proponent of an emergency fund. Amen? You see that. Very clear. So what's an emergency fund? Minimum of three to six months of living expenses. So a dollar figure, you want a dollar figure, go back to your monthly spending. How much do you spend per month? Multiply that out, three to six months. And this is minimum if you have a fluctuating income, maybe you're a salesperson or your, your work is seasonal, you might want to bump that up to six to nine or maybe a year. 
Um, or in my particular situation with my family, because our household income is so low, uh, we need to have enough to cover for deductible for insurance plans and things like that. So ours is more like 12 months. But 12 months is actually still not that much for us. Um, but three to six months minimum <coughs> living expenses, not income. And of course, the understanding is that your living expenses should be quite a bit lower than your income. But if your living expenses is higher than your income, then you've got another problem altogether. We'll talk about that this afternoon. So for an emergency fund, <coughs> excuse me, emergency fund, where should I put it? It should be kept in an FDIC or NCUA insured account. So FDIC are for banks, NCUA is for uh, credit unions. So it insures your account up to $250,000. So in the event that the bank goes down, uh, your money is insured. You don't want to lose the money. It's a safety net, not an investment. Okay, so that's the reason why we, we're not putting it in the stock market, we're not investing it in land or something. You want it liquid, so if you have an emergency, you have access to it, okay? And you, <coughs> you want it insured so that it doesn't go in, down in value right when you need it, right when you have an emergency. So this emergency fund is not for investing. You're not looking at gaining a lot of money on it. You're not necessarily growing it. It's just a cushion that you stick right there in between you and that time bomb. You don't want to touch it except for genuine emergencies. So new iPhone comes out, you want it, that's not an emergency, okay? Just want to make that clear. Your friend decides to go out to eat and uh, you realize you spent all your money for the month, it's not an emergency. You might lose some face, your friends might make fun of you. It might be a different type of emergency, but it doesn't qualify for this, okay? And what's amazing, what's amazing is that once you had an emergency fund in place, you find that you have a lot fewer emergencies. It's really, really strange how that works. It's like, before you have an emergency fund, it's like every week some crisis comes up. Once you have an emergency fund, it's like, life is so chill, like there's no, nothing ever goes wrong anymore. Well, the reason is because you've built a cushion in your life. So the things, the $500 things that used to be emergencies, all of a sudden, they're no longer emergencies. So having an emergency fund, it's uh, better for your health, better for your sleep, better for your stress level, highly recommend it. But what about bigger risks? So you all know, in this day and age, saving three to six months of living expenses, yeah, that's great. And by the way, three to six months, the reason they say that is because that is generally about how long, if you lose a job, how long it takes to get back on your feet to get another job. So that's one of the reasons. But we realize that sometimes, that time bomb goes off. And it could wipe out not just three to six months of income, it might be three to six years or more. So what do we do? Ecclesiastes 11 verse two. Give a portion of seven and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. And this is where we get the title of our seminar. So when there's a big catastrophe, Ecclesiastes tells us to diversify our risk, okay? And what does that mean? Well, this is, a, in a way, a description of how insurance works. You have a big pot of money that everybody chips into, so you're dividing it up between seven or eight people. Everyone, or more, right? Thousands or millions of people. Everyone chips in their monthly premium. And when <coughs> a few of the people ends up having a gigantic catastrophe, there's a big pot of money ready to come to their aid. And the assumption is not everyone is going to need to be withdrawing all at the same time. And so everyone chips in a little bit, but yet everybody gets access to it when the time comes. That's the general principle of insurance. So insurance is the next step beyond uh, having an emergency fund to take care of this, these ticking time bomb situations that are much bigger than what our emergency fund can cover. What does Ellen White have to say? Well, this is not Ellen White. This is Willie talking about Ellen White. This was uh, August 28, a letter he wrote in August 28, 1932, sometime after her death. Several times, I've been present when this matter was discussed in the presence of Sister White. And each time, she has advised us that it is well to ensure meeting houses and our institutions. On one occasion, she remarked, 
that if it should become known that we did not ensure our meeting houses and our institutions, <coughs> that the enemies of our faith would take great delight in burning them. This is a, I don't know if this is supposed to be a humorous statement or sort of a morbid statement because you know the Adventist history with institutional fires. But what she's saying, according to Willie, is that it is presumptuous for us to not insure our buildings. Is that clear? Amen? Because if we don't insure it, and the enemies of God know it, they know they can set back our work by just burning our buildings. It's presumptuous not to have insurance, according to this statement. On another occasion, she said, certainly if there is debt on a church, the only honest thing we can do is insure it, thus providing for the protection from loss to those who have lent money to us. So Ellen White, very clearly, according to Willie at least, is in favor of having insurance for those catastrophic expenses that are far beyond what our personal savings or uh, emergency savings would be able to cover. And she goes so far to say, it is presumptuous to not have insurance. And she also says we need to do it if you know, we borrowed money uh, to build those, those buildings. All right, we read this quote in the last hour, of course. Um, that was Willie's comments, but let's see what Ellen White herself said. So she says, I, wished, uh, I wish you would see to that the house of Hillsburg is insured. Talk to Lucinda about it. I feel anxious in regard to it. In 1884, she says, Brother Palmer says he has written to you in regard to the insurance. If the house is not insured, it should be at once. So Ellen White is very much in favor of, at least in these cases, specifically property insurance. So using the principles that we're deriving from, those statements. For risks larger than we can afford to cover through our personal savings, we should get insurance. Not to have insurance for these things is presumption. Because wouldn't it be easy for the enemies of God to just completely derail God's people by just causing calamities for all the things that we have made no preparations for? In fact, she said that as much. But this is how the emergency fund and insurance ties together. Our emergency fund should be adequate to cover the deductible and out-of-pocket maximums of our health in, or of our insurance policies. So in emergency fund, yes, three to six months expenses generally is what we're looking at, but like in our case, our three to six months expenses are so low that it would not cover for the deductible for our home insurance or our health insurance. And so we have to raise it in order to make sure that we have enough to cover our health insurance deductible and out-of-pocket maximum. Now, I know this is insurance lingo and it's sort of boring, but I think it's important to know what's deductible. The deductible is the part of the insurance that you have to pay before the insurance company picks up the rest. And out-of-pocket maximum is the maximum amount that you, you can pay uh, before the insurance company picks up everything. So sometimes after the deductible, you still pay 50% or 20% or copay even after you meet your deductible, whereas the deductible you cover 100%. Anyway, uh, I don't need to get too far into that, but just know your emergency fund should cover your deductible. And this last point here is important. Insurance is not investing. Keep them separate. This is an important point because a lot of times, like whole life insurance, they blend them together and you get neither the best of both worlds. Insurance is risk mitigation. Investing is getting a return on your capital. Two different goals, different different methods to accomplish them. Keep them separate and you'll be better off, right? Just keep that thought in mind. So, what about life insurance? One of the most common questions I get asked about is, but didn't Ellen White say? Yes, Ellen White did say. So let's take a look at that. Is it evil or is it vital? What does Ellen White say about life insurance? Testimonies for the Church, Volume 1, page 549, paragraph 2. And this is an entire chapter in Testimonies, Volume 1, I recommend you read it <coughs> if you want more information. She talks about life insurance uh, in the whole chapter. She says, I was shown that Sabbath-keeping Adventists should not engage in life insurance. This is a commerce with the world which God does not approve. Those who engage in this enterprise are uniting with the world while God calls his people to come out from among them and to be separate. Sounds pretty clear, right? So is... Uh, is Ellen White pro-life insurance or anti-life insurance? Very clearly, she's anti-life insurance. 
but the rest of the but the rest of the statement gives more insights. I don't have the full quote here. She talks about how people try to get rich quick. They're in a haste to make money, and these enterprises and, and um, <coughs> things that uh, are are inventions that try to make a big return. So somehow. Back then, she was talking about a life insurance where people are using it as an investment to make money. So there's a, there's a, there's a paper by George W. Reed called Seventh-day Adventist and Life Insurance. It's available at that website. Uh, it's the BRI website, where the church actually did a study on life insurance, Ellen Council, historical context, and all of that. And this is what I find from that paper. The fledgling insurance industry was fully involved in the spirit of the time. So this is the question, why did Ellen White say what she said about life insurance? What was the big problem with life insurance? The fledgling insurance industry was fully involved in the spirit of the times. The spirit steeped in the essence of high risk. Undercapitalized insurance stock groups, while promising quick wealth, frequently collapsed without notice, leaving their policies worthless. Company dealings with their customers <coughs> excuse me, often were unjust and not infrequently fraudulent in nature. Policies written on the lives of complete strangers were urged upon a public that was encouraged to invest in the hope of profiting from the death of the insured. There were other articles I've read, and they basically said insurance companies back then were like Ponzi schemes. There was no insurance involved. People were just paying money, and people were expecting a return, but those companies just made off with their money and left. There was no regulation, and you can see it was written, or life insurance was proposed more as an investment, get rich quick opportunity, as opposed to protecting the income of the individual that the policy was written against. That's the historical context. So, from that same paper, this is what's recommended. Today's life insurance industry, heavily regulated by law and government agencies, differs in important ways from that of the late 1800s. Ellen White's counsel against life Investing in life insurance must be understood against the background of the practices of her times if the meaning of her words is to be properly understood. So in other words, we have to realize what was life insurance like back in her day versus what it's like today. Because using another analogy, you remember Ellen White made statements about every woman should learn how to harness a horse. That's a true statement. She said that. But does that mean every woman needs to literally learn how to harness a horse today? I mean, it wouldn't hurt, right? It'd be nice, but is that really what she meant, the principle of it? Looking at the historical context, she's talking more about women should know how to handle the day-to-day rigors of transportation, right? Taking care of their modes of transportation, getting places to be independent and all that. Same with the council on the bicycle craze in Battle Creek. She has some strong statements against the bicycle craze. It wasn't necessarily that bicycles were bad, but in that particular historical context in Battle Creek, there were issues that she was dealing with. We have to look at the historical context is what I'm illustrating. So what happened to life insurance? So I, have, I did a little research. There's this article here called The, Inch, uh, the History of Insurance in America found on Investopedia. And they actually have more resources that I'm not including everything here. But what happened after Ellen White's death that changed the landscape for life insurance? In 1935, the Social Security Act came into effect providing unemployment compensation and old age benefits. This took away some of the insurance company's territory and sent a clear signal that encouraged the industry to begin regulating itself for fear of more government involvement. This is about 20 years after Ellen White's death. Life insurance, the life insurance industry began to change. Let's keep going. World War II, so now we're in the early 40s, brought a wage freeze, and companies, desperate to attract the workers still in the country, started offering group life and health insurance. These big policies went to large companies and that could handle them. This swelled the big guys and starved out the little guys, along with most of the fly-by-night rabble. So there was consolidation in the companies in the 40s, and the little guys basically disappeared. Continuing. In 1944, the Supreme Court ruled the insurance, that insurance should come under the federal regulation, but Congress passed the McCarran-Ferguson Act in 1945, returning control to the state level. And so since the mid-40s, life insurance is now one of the most heavily regulated financial industries in the market. It is night and day compared to when Ellen White was alive and talking about the subject. So it would really be incongruous to equate life insurance her day 
with life insurance today. They're two different things, different beasts, if you will. And so we have to take the rest of our counsel interview. We're going to get there in a moment. So life insurance today. So the bottom line is life insurance today is not the same as life insurance in Ellen White's day. They're just different animals. But going a step further, Ellen White strongly counsels for making provision to care for our loved ones in case of emergency, and life insurance is one effective way to do that. Let me give you the quote. Adventist Home, page 396, paragraph 1. The means you have earned has not been wisely and economically expended so as to leave a margin should you be sick and your family deprived of the means you bring to sustain them. So she's specifically talking about you as a breadwinner, probably talking to a husband or a father of the home. Your family depends on your income. So you need to have a way to provide for them should your income be removed from them. Your family should have something to rely upon if you should be brought into straightened places. And guess what life insurance does? It replaces the income of the person that's being insured. That's the purpose. Okay? So with these principles in mind, we have to understand that Ellen White counsels us to make provision for our families. The life insurance policies today are not what she talked about back then, and that in a carefully crafted financial plan, life insurance does and can have a place. So let's get a little bit more practical now. So do I really need life insurance? No, not everyone needs life insurance. Life insurance, what's the purpose? The only, it's only needed for those with dependents uh, and who do not have adequate access to care for them because uh, life insurance is providing for the needs of dependents in the event that the breadwinner dies. So if you don't have any dependents, why do you need life insurance? There's no need. Or if you already have saved up and you have adequate assets and wealth that can take care of your family in the event that your income is taken away from them, you don't need life insurance. Or even if you're married, right? You and your wife, you don't have any kids. Your wife is well able to take care of herself. If you were to pass off the scene, you don't need life insurance. So the point here is life insurance is not something that everybody all over, everyone all the time needs. It's something that is meeting a specific need, and that is to replace the income of the breadwinner of the family. And more specifically, term life insurance is best for most people as opposed to whole life or cash value. So what's the difference? Term life insurance is more basic life insurance. It's what you expect. Term, meaning you only buy it for a specific term, 20, 25, 30 years generally. And you pay your monthly premium, and during the time of this, uh, that the plan is in force, and as long as you're paying your premiums, should you die, or whoever you buy the insurance policy on dies, the face value of that policy gets given to the beneficiaries. That's it. You insure this person. If they die, they, their beneficiaries get the money. Simple. Whole life or cash value, on the other hand, it takes life insurance and investments, and they meld them together. And you build up a cash value, and then you have certain amounts that's insurance, certain amount that's uh, investments. And there are like a gazillion different flavors of this. And you can never really figure out how much am I going to make, and you have to pay in a certain amount of time, and then you, know, you don't actually get all of it back until you're like 10, 15, 20 years down the road. There are tax ramifications. So I'm not saying that cash value in whole life never, never, never has a place. But in most cases, it's not a good idea for most people. Term life insurance, it's simple to understand, and it's super cheap. So do I need it? You can answer that question for yourself, depending on your life situation. So how do you use term life insurance? You purchase life, term life insurance during the wealth billing years when your kids are dependents at home. So usually that's 20 to 30 years, depending on how many kids you have, how far apart you space them, and so forth, until they're grown and gone uh, out of college. Those usually are the prime years. But if you have families with special needs, maybe elderly parents, infirmed uh, special needs children or disabled family members, that might change, okay? So depending on your situation. And during those years that you have term life insurance, you want to be saving and investing during those decades so that when the term policy ends, you have accrued and invested enough assets so that you don't need the life insurance anymore. So during the 20 or 30 years that your kids are home, growing up, going to school, you know, you're working, and if you were to die, your family would be in dire straits, okay? You want life insurance to provide that risk protection. But during that time, you're saving into your retirement plan, whatever, and then by the time you hit, I don't know, 50, 60, whatever, your kids are grown and gone, 
There's only you and your wife at home. You don't need to spend so much money. You've saved up. You've been investing like what we talked about earlier, putting your money in interest. And your nest egg has grown to a point where you don't need the life insurance anymore. Okay, so get life insurance for the phase of life when you need it, and then don't buy it when you don't need it. Okay, that's the basic point. So how much do I need? Simple ways to figure this based on your particular situation. You want enough life insurance to cover the needs of the family until your dependents are independent. So if you have young children, like I do, two years, two years old, there's still a long time to raise this child, whether it's my wife or whether it's uh, legal guardians, if both of us were to die. We need to leave enough so that whatever Christian education and raising the child is taken care of so it's not a burden, right? We're talking about being self-reliant, not a burden on our families or whoever else ends up taking care of the child. Okay, in addition to that, we want to make sure that the insurance policy covers our major financial obligations, debts, future expenses like a mortgage or an education. So if we had a big mortgage and I die and my wife is all by herself, that mortgage is going to be a gigantic burden on her. So you want life insurance to be able to cover for those type of debts and maybe college for my child in the future. So for a specific number, roughly, okay, roughly 25% of annual need is a rough mathematical calculation. So if you need to replace approximately $20,000 of annual need, you would take a $500,000 policy. That happens to be my policy. I have $500,000, half a million on me, and it costs about $30 a month. So it's less than my car insurance, to give you some comparison. And if you're young and healthy, which following the health message certainly helps in that regard, going up to a million-dollar policy, you're not adding that much more. So we're not talking about huge sums of money to buy life insurance. Now, why do I say 25%? It's because of what's called the 4% safe withdrawal rule. And this rule is from an academic study. It's called the Trinity Study. Nothing to do with the doctrine, just I guess a school is named Trinity. And uh, they realized that for most conservative investment portfolios, you can withdraw anywhere from 3 to 4% with inflation calculated in and your nest egg will not run out within a typical 30 to 40 year period. And so that's why the 4% safe withdrawal rule is generally uh, cited by experts as a safe amount that you can withdraw from your investments per year without destroying the principal before it's time. So that's the reason 25, per, uh, 25 times the annual need. All right, health insurance. So some of us who are not from this country are probably going to glaze over at this part of the presentation wondering what's the big deal. But hopefully the principles that we bring out may still be helpful. So <coughs> you know that getting sick in this country is costly business. Uh, I'll share a little bit about my own experience with that in just a moment. But here's a statement again. Selective Messages, Volume 2, page 330, paragraph 2. Diligence in business, abstinence from pleasure, even privation so long as health is not in danger, should be cheerfully maintained by a young man in your circumstances, and you would have a little competency untouched, should you become sick. So specifically, LNY here is saying, you should mitigate the risk of sickness so that the charities of others would not be your dependents. An emergency fund is nice, but come on. Three to six months of living expenses is not going to go anywhere if you end up getting admitted to the hospital. We all know that. So why do we need health insurance? It's to cover for high medical expenses that would wipe us out financially. Medical expenses is the number one reason for bankruptcies in the United States. 10 years ago, exactly, 10 years ago, at GYC in Minnesota, I was stricken with a severe illness. Some of you may remember the story. I was VP of logistics for GYC at the time, Wednesday morning before GYC. I had a sudden, it's like a stroke. It wasn't a stroke, but I was paralyzed from the neck down. Admitted to the hospital in Minnesota. I was on a ventilator, ICU, the whole nine yards. I was in the hospital for two weeks. Just in Minnesota, before flying back to Loma Linda, rehab for three months, inpatient rehab, outpatient rehab, doctor visits. You know, you understand, it keeps going. Do you know how much it costs? Just the two weeks in Minnesota. Anyone want to take a guess? 
Half a million? Well, not quite. 75,000? 200,000? 300,000? 300,000, anyone. It was over $10,000 a night. So for two weeks, it was about $160,000. That's just for the first two weeks. I was in rehab for another six months. You understand why medical expenses wipe people out in this country? But at the same time, we have the counsel to not be dependent on the charities of others and to not be a burden on the church. So what do we do? That's where health insurance comes in. If I did not have health insurance, I was under my parents' policy at the time. If I did not have health insurance, and by the way, I was of the mindset back in those days, I'm young, I'm vegetarian, I'm healthy, I don't need health insurance. (laughs) If I did not have health insurance, do you know where I'd be? Uh, Still trying to pay off that debt. Or I would have declared bankruptcy by now, probably. I don't know. But I am no longer that naive young man that thought, oh, I don't need health insurance. I needed health insurance. And praise the Lord, I had it. But that is still a pervasive way of thinking today. So I want to deal with a few of these questions about health insurance that I think is common within our circles. I live the Adventist health message. Or I'm young and I'm strong. Or I work for God. Or... I'm sacrificing for him. So God is my insurance. So I don't need health insurance. The sad fact is we live in a sinful world. And as a result of that, we all have this time bomb that I keep talking about that's strapped to our backs. And it might go off at any moment. And it might include accidents or illness. Even if you're the most faithful health reformer. We all know healthy, you know, godly people who died of cancer or some other health issue. It's the result of a sinful world that we live in. It's not the fault of God or those people. And it can hit young or old. I had a friend of mine killed in a car accident at 16 years old. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter who you are, what skin color you are, how old you are, how young you are, what you eat. We live in a sinful world, and that, as a result, we have risk. And so we, as careful stewards of the means that God has given us, we need to be careful to think through how do we manage the risk. Here's a biblical principle. We need to learn from the unjust steward's forethought and risk mitigation. Luke 16. You remember the story, the unjust steward. It's just this, it's sort of a contradictory story, right? Like he's defrauding his, his master and his master commended him because he did wisely. And Jesus is not saying we should defraud anybody. But Jesus said the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. He even goes, so what, what is he saying? He's saying we need to learn from this unjust steward who had the forethought to mitigate the risk when he's kicked out. But so many of God's people, Jesus is saying, we don't think about the future. We just, we make no plans and we just, we just go on. And then when disaster strikes, what happens? God's money has to flow out of God's work to take care of God's people when we don't make wise decisions. In that way, I believe Jesus is saying, we need to be wiser than the children of this world. So health insurance, I think it is wise for us to have it but I really don't need it because I don't believe in conventional medicine and I only seek treatment through alternative means that insurance won't cover. I am only going to do hydrotherapy. Well, look, I I have nothing against natural remedies. I believe in them. And our lifestyle centers, they're wonderful places to go. But the reality is there are many acute and chronic conditions that may still require conventional intervention. For example, you get in a car accident, they're not going to give you a hydrotherapy treatment. You're going to the ER. If you have some sort of emergency that requires surgery, guess what? It's still going to cost a lot of money, and those things can still bankrupt you. But perhaps more importantly than that, just because we are seeking alternative means of healing, and when I say alternative means you realize that that covers a lot of stuff. And not everything that's alternative is automatically good. You realize I'm not necessarily condoning or discouraging. I'm just using this as uh, a common phrase. But just because we seek alternative means of healing, does that exempt us from the principle of self-reliance? Does that somehow make us like, more entitled to have other people help us? It's like, oh, I'm not going to see the doctor, so that means I'm holier, so you should give me your offering money. So I can go do acupuncture or, you know, whatever it might be. The principle that I've been trying to really drill a home in this seminar, this particular hour, 
is that God has given us the ability to be economical, to be diligent, to provide for our own needs as far as possible so that we are not a burden on the church, on others, and not to rely on the dependence on others. So if we believe in conventional, or not using conventional means, that means we, in our own personal emergency fund, our savings, should build that, uh, build that in. How much is it going to cost to go get these types of treatments? We need to take responsibility to think through that instead of saying, hey, I don't want to go see the doctor, so you have to pay for me. That kind of thinking, it doesn't, doesn't fly. Okay, but what else? But I can't afford it. Now, this one, sort of legitimate. <laughs> it's too expensive. I can't cover the deductible or out-of-pocket expenses. Before my wife and I had our child, we were in this boat. Obamacare had just come out the ACA, Affordable Care Act. We made too much, not enough dependents in our home. Astronomical premiums, monthly premiums, and our deductibles were like $10,000. So we would be paying so much money month after month, and the deductible was so high that we would never use it. It, was, it, would just, it just could not work. And there are a lot of people in this situation. A lot of young people, particularly if you're single, if you're in a, professional, a profession that you make a lot of money, what do you do if you don't get it from work, of course? So here are a couple options, a couple things to consider. First of all, you want to see if you qualify for any subsidies. So that's the Obamacare open enrollment period is over now. And of course, who knows what's going to happen next year? I'm not going to get all political on you, but things are going to change. So don't know what's going to happen next year. But you should at least look into it. And also, for many of us who have been working in supporting ministries with low incomes, there are government programs that we do qualify for. It's worth looking into. And we need to look for at least catastrophic coverage. So things that are going to completely sink our financial ship, we need to look into those. And again, the emergency fund is the critical piece here. If we have a fully stocked emergency fund, we can step up and get a higher insurance deductible. And when you have a higher deductible, you have lower premiums. And if you have an emergency fund to cover for your higher deductible, you're still covered. So in my family now, now that I have a, th a third member of the home and we lost half of our income, we qualify for Obamacare now and we have a very affordable uh, health insurance plan, <coughs> Blue Cross Blue Shield in Tennessee, and we have what's called a high deductible health care or health plan. And what that does, it gives us a very high deductible. It's like five, $6,000 per person. It's like $12,000 deductible for the family. It's like really high. But we saved up enough money to cover for that deductible. And as a result of having an HDHP, we qualify for what's called a health savings account. And a health savings account is a, it's like the most tax-advantaged investment account on the face of the planet. The money goes in pre-tax. It grows tax-free, and when you withdraw it for qualifying medical expenses, there's no tax. So it's the only money that you can earn and place and invest in that has, that's not taxed. And that's what we have, HSA. And so we invest in it, and by the way, once you hit 65, the HSA turns essentially into an IRA, so you can withdraw it for your income and just pay income tax on it. So you get the tax benefits of an IRA plus the health insurance benefits and uh, you get a higher amount of, um, that you can pay in year after year. So this is what we do now. High deductible healthcare plan, it costs us almost nothing month to month, and we save like crazy into our HSA. We max it out every year for the tax benefits. It's also our healthcare emergency fund, and also if we don't use it in the future, it becomes our retirement savings. So that's an option if you qualify, right? So what about the back, back to the situation where we were in two years ago? We did not qualify for any subsidies for Obamacare. It was super expensive, and we didn't make that much money, but still didn't qualify. So we, at that time, got what's called a Christian health share plan. Medicare, or not Medicare, MediShare, sorry, uh, is, was a specific one that we used. It was about, a, I think, a $5,000, they call it an annual household portion, which is the, essentially the deductible portion, and we paid $180 a month or something like that for both of us. And so these are, it's not insurance, but they are groups of Christian um, individuals who pool their money together to essentially create their own form of insurance. 
It serves the same purpose, but they can't, for legal reasons, call it insurance. They have different uh, qualifications for admissions. They don't, uh, they don't cover every single thing. You know, if you're an alcoholic, they're not going to cover you for certain things. If you get hit by, if you're a drunk driver and you were at fault, they're not going to cover some of those things because of their values and all that kind of stuff. But for Adventists, we will not only qualify, but because we have the Adventist lifestyle and the Adventist health message, if we are following it, we can actually get a special discount if we are meeting certain, you know, health guidelines. And that's what we had. It's like another 10% discount. So... All I'm saying is this. If we are going to take Ellen White's counsel seriously about being self-reliant and, and providing for ourselves in the case of health emergencies, there are options, I believe, for most of us, the vast majority of us, those of us who are included in the typical GYC uh, demographic. If we are willing to make the choice, if we're willing to make the sacrifice, but I think most of the time when we say, but I can't afford it, it's not that we can't afford it, it's we say it's not a priority. And the question is, why isn't it? Okay, so that's the question I'm going to leave with you as we hasten to a close here. I'm over time, but let me finish with this. There's also GoFundMe. So another excuse is I'll just use crowdfunding to raise money when I have medical needs. I don't know about you, but recently, every week, just about, there's another GoFundMe campaign asking for medical expenses. Well, research shows uh, that over 50% or nearly 50% of all crowdfunding now is for medical expenses. It's the largest category of fundraising, in crowd, or particularly for GoFundMe, but all the crowdfunding platforms. But if you're going to rely on GoFundMe, remember this. Nine out of 10 medical, medical campaigns do not get fully funded. You have a 90% chance of not re reaching what you need. And crowdfunding platforms keep a significant percentage of the funds. They take a 5% fee plus the credit card transaction fee, so sometimes as high as 10% right off the top, whether you meet your goals or not. Okay, so who's getting rich is GoFundMe. But there's more to this. Fundraising for our own needs should be the last resort, not the first. And this is really the bottom line of what we've been saying this whole session. We need to be self-reliant as far as possible. So we need to ask ourselves, if we are tempted to just run to GoFundMe, oh, I don't need health insurance, I don't need an emergency fund, I'll just go ask for money on GoFundMe. If that's our attitude, okay, and I'm not saying that it is never legitimate to fundraise, and I myself have given okay, to multiple GoFundMe campaigns for medical expenses, we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions. Number one, am I comfortable releasing all this private information about myself online? Because in order for you to get to not be the 90% that fail, to be the 1% that actually get fully funded, you need to have a really compelling story. And to share a lot of transparency. You have to give a lot of details about your real situation. That's the reality. You have to be able to market yourself and market your need on the crowdfunding platform. And since it's going online, are you comfortable essentially with that private information about yourself being online basically forever. Are you sure you want to do that? That's a question you need to ask. Number two, have I done all in my power to meet this need myself? Is it because of choices that I made that I'm in this situation? Or is it a legitimate emergency that I have done all that I can, but I just can't do anymore? Okay? Ask yourself that question. And then finally, what am I willing to sacrifice so to minimize my need of other people's charity? Again, this is the foundational question. We need to be thinking, what can I do to minimize the impact to God's work and his people? Okay? And so, here's that quote again. Selective Messages, Volume 2, page 330, paragraph 2. This is sort of my health insurance quote, if you will. Diligence in business, abstinence from pleasure, even privation, so long as health is not in danger, should be cheerfully maintained by a young man in your circumstance, and you would have a little competency untouched to become sick. So little emergency fund, three to six months, and... Maybe a high, high deductible, catastrophic health insurance policy or a medical health sharing plan in place, right? We should be willing to be diligent, to be abstinent from pleasure, even suffer a little privation, sacrifice a little bit, to place ourselves in that position. Why? Why? So that the charities of others would not be our dependents. That's the bottom line. 
And so let's summarize. Risk and insurance. What have we talked about this hour? We need to do all we can to be self-reliant, so to not depend on the charity of others or to be a burden on the church. We should strive to be the one rendering aid to other people rather than the one requiring it. And to do that, we should have a fully funded emergency fund and we should purchase reasonable insurance to cover for catastrophic risk and then to cooperate with God in following the laws of financial health, to trust in him that he will provide for our lack when we've done our best. But if we're not going to do anything, God, God looks at us and says, I've given you principles. You're not doing anything. You're not actually obeying the laws I've given you. So that brings us to the conclusion here of our second session. I apologize for going over a little bit. Let's bow our heads for prayer as we conclude. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the clear counsel while some of this might have been a little bit challenging, Lord, help us to be willing to do our part, to not be a burden upon your church or your work. Bless us the remainder of this GYC and the rest of our seminar. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.